0: And Welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana podcast. Hi, Jeff. Ooh, that was your morning voice. <laughs> that was my NPR voice. Yeah, that's what that's. Well, we are here in the morning, welcome. so it makes welcome some sense. Welcome to the Beer podcast. <laughs> 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 First, the news. Uh, hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm all right, Patrick. Yeah, are we are. A little, this is a little early for us, but that's because, as you'll soon find out, we're going to be talking to the far east coast. That's right. So we got to get up early so we can make those uh, telegrams because we're because we're in far oregon (laughs) (laughs) far west oregon uh it's a lovely day spring has finally started to come to beautiful oregon yeah and crocuses are popping through the soil and the sun is out we had a late winter and so uh normally we would be in full bloom by now but we're not but, but we did we got a version of what a lot of the country is experiencing this sort of late winter blast yeah Cold temperatures, even some snow. Uh, not typical for Oregon in March. That's right. Uh, well, Portland in March uh, on the mountains, sure. Uh, so, uh, welcome to the Beer Bottom Podcast, of course. With me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of The Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, and available in one month. Two weeks. Two Sorry weeks. about that. Got to update that. I was going to say, it was one month last time. Yeah. Two weeks. The Widmer Way from Ooligan Press. Uh, you've just been. Um, talking about all the uh, book readings and stuff you're gonna do for that, so it's pretty exciting. And there's some like cool video
1: uh, yeah, they've made a trailer yeah. for the, the book, which I have never seen any of my other publishers do. All so. good, all good books have a trailer. Uh, it's are pretty cool. You, are you featured in it? I am not, but the <sighs> cool, but the reason it's, it's especially cool is because they have old archival footage of Robin Kurt Widmer, that about cool. whom the book is about. I got too many abouts. In <laughs> you know, what I, you know, where I'm headed there. Um, <laughs> and so it's a really cool. That about the whom com- is the book. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, anyway, it's very cool. They cleaned up the, the video, so it looks like they're uh, not from the distant past. Nice.
0: Yeah, it's Sporting nice. mustaches and short shorts and everything, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> cool. Uh, you can also find Jeff blogging at Birvana, uh, and he tweets at, at Birvana. <laughs> <clears throat> That's right. And with me
1: is... Uh, Patrick Emerson, who is a professor of economics at Oregon State University, thought for a second you almost forgot who I was. There, uh, <laughs> I started reading it, and I I was reading my own paragraph, and that was not that was not getting me there. Uh, you blog at
0: Burenomics. Uh, yeah, not really. I tweet more. At uh, I'm sorry. You tweet at Burenomics. Yeah, yeah I, I do, do have a blog. blog. There, the two blogs I still exist. My old blogs, <laughs> <That's> but. <right. laughs> I haven't visited them in probably over a year for the beer one and probably over three years for the economics one. Yeah. Blogs uh, never go away. They just but I still decay. Tweet. slowly. But I still tweet from time to time. Um, but, you know, that's old technology. This is now we podcast. Now we podcast. Sup- supersedes everything. So, uh, okay. Have you podcast at Beeronomics. <laughs> that's right. Or, Be- Be- oh, beer, oh, or at Beer. Bona. Bona. Yeah, i sorry, at Yeah, that's right. Say, uh, I do try to blurb my. the Actually, that's. About half of my Twitter content is, is promoting, <laughs> promoting pod, this pod, yeah. Yeah, uh, for my three followers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so today, actually, uh, it's going to be a fun pod. Um, we are excited to welcome a special guest, uh, Jay Nicole Jackson Beckham, is a professor, a scholar, a home brewer, a poet, an activist, and a blogger. She was recently recruited by the Brewers Association to help the craft brewing industry create a more inclusive community. We're going to talk to Professor Jackson Beckham and learn about her scholarly work and get her insight. If you follow her on Twitter, you know she's engaging, funny, and a deep thinker. We're excited to have her, of course. But first, before we get to her, we need to do the news. All right, let's start in Utah. Uh, The great state of Utah, (laughs) where legislators have made an historic, if incremental, move to increase the allowable alcohol content in beer from 3.2% alcohol by weight to 4%. It's an illustration of how antiquated the law is, that it's still measuring beer by weight. Everywhere else, the content is measured by volume. Uh, Utah's law would increase the content from 4% to 5% ABV uh, uh, by volume. Uh, legislators defeated a bill that would have raised the limit to 4.8 percent alcohol by weight or 6 percent alcohol by volume. Uh, there you go, Utah we joining, <laughs> kind of joining the modern world, but but
1: very tentatively. Yeah.
0: When I first read this, we just had a little chat before the pod, and I, of course, my experience is Colorado, where that was just the grocery store rule, and you could get the regular beer you know, in the in the, in the the bars and in liquor stores at regular um, alcohol by volume uh, percentages. Uh, but no, not in Utah, apparently. No, Utah is a Mormon
1: state in which I lived for two and a half years and got to see this up close. Uh, if you go to a brew pub there, they're making IPAs that are 3.2% because, or 4% really, by, by the way we think about beer, because that's the law. Uh, Josh Freem got his start in... Utah and considers it incredibly valuable experience, because it forced him to learn how to brew different different styles and different and different flavors and create kind of a richness of you know flavor profile in these really simple little
0: beers. That yeah. So if you want to know how to make a session beer, a session version of of a big beer, go to Utah. I guess find that's out, right. Find out how they do it there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's um, that's pretty archaic. Yeah. Well, it's the there's a there's a church there. That has a lot of... uh, I've heard about this church. (laughs) LDS. Yes, I... Yep. Uh, uh, You can get a strong cup of
1: coffee though, right? There's no... When I was in high school, uh, where I spent my last two and a half years uh, of high school there... Which high school was it? Uh, Highland High. Go shout Rams. out! Shout out to Highland High. We, we were so bad in, Salt Lake uh, in football that we went uh, we went entirely defeated my senior year. <laughs> and then when they had the junior versus senior football thing, the juniors <laughs> crushed the seniors. It was humiliating. Oh, but boy. anyway, uh, the um, to, to, to your coffee point. Yes, there were no coffee shops allowed in the city of Salt Lake when I was growing up. You had to create a separate private club. <laughs> And right. he, you could go in there, and you could join the private club, and you'd buy a cup of coffee. <laughs> so
0: coffee clubs. It was uh, it was a weird it was a weird place to be in, a young a uh, young so high school y- student. So, so what you're saying is Utah's slowly making its way into the 20th century. <laughs> That's right. Okay. That's right. They're 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 <laughs> finally <laughs> shaking shaking the dust off that
1: prohibition thing and, and moving right out of the 1930s. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh,
0: we'll, start pi- we'll start picking on Utah now.
1: That's right. Well, let's go to a neighboring state yes. uh, where uh, the beer world learned uh, and was excited to learn that uh, Wine Coop, yeah? winecoop. Coop? Yep. That's how you pronounce it? Yep. Uh, brewery founder John Hickenlooper was uh, going to join the Democratic field for president. Uh, although his more relevant qualifications include two terms uh, as or uh, Colorado governor and mayor of Denver, Hickenlooper is uh, actually leaning in quite heavily to that, his business experience too. So uh, Yeah, he's, that's,
0: he, he's, he's really running as a brewer partly as, uh, as his portfolio. So. I lived in Denver when he first started mulling uh, his um, bid for the uh, uh, mayoral ship. Oh, wow. Like, mayor, mer- you mayorality were or mayoral ship? I don't think he was. I think the election was after I left. Huh? Uh, or may have been right before I left. Oh, you were there a long time ago. I wasn't there a long time ago, but uh, that's what was what what my point was going to be was um, he was well known as a as the uh, the owner founder of winecoop Brewery and so he had all of this sort of business credential and this was a time in which Colorado was still a pretty uh, red state but Denver was pretty blue and he was that moderate compromise candidate and did very well as a mayor was, right. had a lot of success and and had a lot of um, uh, good. That's probably the wrong way to say it, but um, got a lot of credit uh, for doing a good job and, as the mayor, and then he became uh, the governor. And at that time, that was just at the sort of transition when, when, when Colorado was quite purple, so he was a real centrist candidate. Uh, but he has a very good sort of uh, folksy affect. Right. Uh, he's, he's a good speaker, um, not like super uh, bombastic, but, you know, uh, connects well, I guess is the thing. So it'll be interesting, but I don't think... Um, no. I'm not no. really sure he's that exportable. <laughs> he's, he's not
1: going to be president. In fact, I took the rare opportunity to combine <laughs> two of my passions, politics and beer, and I wrote a blog post about how, why he was never going to be president. Yeah. And it irritated some people uh, who
0: wanted more hope about that, but I don't see any hope there. So there won't be a brewer as president yet, just yet?
1: I don't think so. Uh, although, uh, President Obama did homebrew in the White House, so we got that going for us. Personally. Well, <laughs> perhaps
0: not personally. Uh, Under his direction, unlike as, unlike, as, unlike some presidents, he probably had a lot of work to do. So yeah, <laughs> his time was by oh, limited. Oh zing! <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> okay, so finally, in the news announced just today, uh, Georgina Young has departed Fuller's uh, in England, where she was head brewer to take the head brewer's position at Bath Ales, uh, the 23-year-old brewery acquired in 2016 by St. Austell. Uh, she had been at Fuller's for 20 years. Yeah, so
1: that's kind of big news. That happened, that broke just this morning. So we're actually breaking some news here. Maybe not breaking, but uh, getting, getting on some news pretty quick. The fallout from the uh, Sahi sale? Yeah, I think no. so. Uh, so um, for those of us that had hoped that Fuller's would not change much, and we would see continuity. This it's is not It's already a beginning. <laughs> um, yeah. We, we sort of have a minor theme here on the podcast about providing you all the Fuller's news up to date and, and, uh,
0: accurate <laughs> to the latest, uh, press release. So, yeah. There there's a special place in our heart for Fuller, hopefully. That's right. They, uh, they continue. Uh, okay. Well, should we, uh, get on the Skype and yeah, so now it's time to make our, our, our long distance call. <laughs> we got to book our long distance call uh, to uh, Virginia. Is that what we're calling?
1: Virginia, yeah.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and do that. All right. See you on the flip side.
1: All right, we are uh, back and we yeah. have patched in. Uh, um, are you in Virginia? I am. Right now? Okay. Uh, we have Jay Nicole Jackson, uh, Beckham with us on the line and I'm going to introduce her in a minute, but, um, we'd like to welcome you to the podcast and thank you for, um, joining us through this tech and, and the time change and everything.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: We are excited. Um, let me introduce you and then we can get some, uh, some of your insight. Um, and I'm also interested, you have a really, uh, long and eclectic biography so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a shot you can tell me what I got right and got wrong how's that sound
2: Sure that sounds great
1: <laughs> All right uh, Jay Nicole Jackson Beckham uh, has a remarkable biography and we'll try to capture some sense of it in this introduction she's a professor of communication studies at Randolph College in Virginia. As a scholar her research and writing has addressed critical food studies including a forthcoming book called The Value of a Pint. American beer, cultural change, and the stubborn materiality of contemporary capitalism. Beyond her scholarly work, she is a poet and a novelist, and is currently in the midst of a project of speculative fiction called Without Light. Uh, She's been a home brewer for the past decade, and is the faculty advisor to the Randolph College Zymergy team, uh, which is easily the coolest bullet point I've ever seen in a bio, personally. (laughs) Uh, So welcome uh and and you go by dr j on twitter and uh but i but i take it Jay is is good enough that is great yeah so how did i do on that uh by uh, that introduction did i capture everything is there anything we'd like to add
2: uh that's pretty great um i as you maybe put very eloquently am sort of all um so uh yeah that's that's perfect
1: okay well, let's get, uh, let's get started then. Uh, we'll get to beer in a moment, but as a way of getting into this, um, let's talk a little bit about your life, and you can give us a little bit of your background. Um, if I'm right, you got started uh, when you went, first started launching into college with an interest in creative writing, and then that kind of evolved to uh, your <laughs> scholarly... <laughs> Bump the table, your scholarly uh, interests as they uh, led into your PhD program and stuff. So do you want to give us a little bit of background about your life and uh, how your creative and and scholarly interests evolved?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, And I think for a lot of people, there's always this underlying question as to, like, how in the hell did you get from A to B Mm -hmm. or A to to H? Um, And so uh, for me, it's really about having... A certain set of curiosities that have really never changed. I've just sort of pointed them at different objects. Um, so you're right, as an undergraduate, I was um, in an English department and creative writing. <clears throat> um, at the time, I primarily wrote poetry. I wasn't really that interested in fiction, but I wrote a little bit of short fiction. And um, at the time, I was you know, a very stereotypically angsty 20 year old, um, I was going through a lot. And, um, for me, creative writing was, um, very much a domain where I felt that I was working through some things and I saw other people working through things in a way that wasn't, um, so direct and wasn't so literal. Right. Uh Um, and made there be kind of a secondary product of um, coping and living that was actually um, beautiful and had kind of a second life in the world. And I really appreciated that. So um, so I finished that program and um, was doing a lot of writing and getting a, a bit of recognition and actually started an MFA program in New York um, right after my undergraduate. Mm. And about... Oh, I don't know, four months into the MFA program and living in New York City, um, I had this kind of epiphany and was like, I like money. Um, and hey man, there's so I much money in poetry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, I I enjoy regular meals and um, all the trappings of money and I want to have a more... Um, significant and regular way of making it. Um, so I actually left the MFA program and, um, went back home for me, which is the Washington DC area. And, um, just was like, okay, I'm going to get like a a real job and see how that goes. Um, so I worked for a couple years, um, largely in kind of writing slash marketing PR type professions. And, um, pretty quickly realized that um there are aspects of that that I really love doing um so you know 2001 was a crazy year to be living in D.C. um in fairly short succession um you know 9-11 so a plane hit the pentagon and I was living maybe three miles from the pentagon Mm. as the crow flies at the time um then we had snipers I don't know if you remember that I Um, do yeah big deal um And that was a little bit crazy. And then there was anthrax at my post office. Wow. Um, so that post office, the Brentwood post office where the postal workers were tragically killed because of the anthrax, um, was my post office. And I actually didn't get mail for quite a while. Um, so, you know, at the time I was in my younger twenties and it was intense. And so I was like, you know what? I just want to go further away and be somewhere chiller. And so I moved to San Diego largely on a whim.
1: Huh?
2: Um, so, as you know, San Diego in the early 2000s was a pretty amazing place to be for beer.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and... Some say um, it still is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, it just kind of, you know, my, my side interest in beer was, like, really peaked once I got there. And kind of academically, I was going back to school to get a master's degree, thinking that I, would, I really just wanted to be, you know, a better professional and kind of marketing Marketing type communications, so I, I um, signed up for a master's degree in communication studies. And um, as part of the funding for that program, uh, I did some student teaching. And um, fairly quickly, I was like, "Oh, teaching! I like this." You know, uh, so I was still, you know, playing with some of the same ideas that I had a, as a creative writing student. Um, Instead of making creative products, I was actually studying creative products. Um, so my master's thesis was about how people use creative production to say things about who they are in the world and whether they're feeling empowered or not.
1: Huh. Uh, did beer play a role in, it, in that at all? Or?
2: Not at all. At okay. the time, I was still studying like um, poets and gotcha. uh and are uh, visual artists, photographers, things like that. Um, so, fast forward a little further, finished that, and decided I wanted to go on um, to get the PhD. And again, I kind of just took beer along with me. By this time, I'd started homebrewing, and um, as part of like making my way through grad school, I was um, kind of managing this homebrew arm of this brew and grow shop in North Carolina, um, and. It was finally kind of at this point when I, you know, a year or two into my PhD program where like the same questions that I kept asking, like about creative production and the role that it plays in culture and how people speak and how people navigate power. um, I finally was like, you know, beer is a really fascinating creative product Mm -hmm. um, that also happens to have an enormous um, capitalist industry around it. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so, um, that was, um, where I kind of finally just made the connection and was like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. And it's something we want to look at. I wanted to look at, um, I had a really hard time convincing my, uh, dissertation advisor that it was a reasonable idea. Um, cause he was like, you study communication. I'm like, but beer, you know, um, <laughs> And I still, you know, I will tell anybody, anywhere, at any time, beer is communication. Um, uh, but finally, you know, I was able to kind of articulate this point that, you know, 2008, um, obviously tectonic things were happening in the brewing industry, the domestic brewing industry at the time. But, you know, we're also in a, in a financial crisis and um, beer wasn't, craft beer specifically, wasn't acting right. You know, for that time people were spending more money uh per beer and drinking more of it per capita than any other kind of luxury product at the time. And I was like, this this market is not, you know, vulgar economics, like something else is happening, and that's what I want to talk about. Um, and that's when I kind of got everybody on board. They're like, okay, yeah, something interesting is happening here.
1: Huh. So what 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 was happening? What what were you seeing?
2: Uh so the argument that I Um, that I end up making, and that will be in the book um, when it's finally ready, um, is that there is something else going on with the way that we calculate value when we're talking about beer, right? Um, And I think the hysterical part is, like, I really wasn't even looking at, like, social media or beer Twitter or anything um, when I was doing this research or doing this work. But if you look at any given beer Twitter argument, um, what a lot of the arguments are about are essentially like, what are the criteria that we are using to attach value to this product?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
2: Um, and so essentially each chapter in the book and the argument I'm making is that, um, depending on context and depending kind of what's going on in American culture, um, we have these really kind of, complicated and slippery and changing ways that we do value assignment and some of the time you know when we see something really stick in the industry or really take off or really make a lot of money um, it's because someone's created a really effective technology of valuation, right like they have figured out a way of doing this that's really really agile and sticky.
1: Patrick do you have something to say here?
2: <laughs>
1: oh, well, I'm Valuate, the word that. valuation floats by, and I think, oh, my economist friend may have something to say.
0: No, no, I was just wondering whether uh, it's it's about the the narrative that is being created around the beer, and what what is the essential part of that narrative that that makes that valuation uh, rise?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's in one part, kind of, what are the narratives or what are the signifiers kind of floating around? And then, secondarily, um, have have they articulated like a just for that narrative? Oh, because sometimes people throw a narrative out there.
1: Sorry, um, you dropped out there. You get me? Yeah. Would you just repeat that one more time?
2: Sure. Um, so it's it's not just um, not just. The narrative, but also that you can frame it within kind of a justifiable calculus, Mm -hmm. so that people say, "Okay, yes, that's a narrative, and yes, I believe that that narrative is worth, right, attaching value to, if that makes sense." Yeah. Um, So sometimes you get narratives or attempts to 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 do this, and sometimes people just don't believe that it's a, a realistic calculus right you know um like (laughs) corn syrup right Right. like the recent thing like people were like yeah i hear your narrative and no i don't think that i don't think that's reasonable Uh um so there's kind of a you have to kind of do it and you have to put it in the right way and sometimes it's not even the narrative sometimes you've just got to be in the right context right um because i would say in some ways the narrative that carried craft beer in the 1970s and 80s may not be as effective now. So yeah. it, was, it was a product of the context.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So how did that lead into this thing, uh, critical food studies, which brings in a whole bunch of other uh, dimensions uh, that you, uh, you have? People should check out your website because there's a ton of rich information there too. Um, you described that in an email between us as the intersection between food and power. Um, so talk a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Sure. Um, you know, so even as I was kind of looking at craft beer as an object, um, my training in communication and cultural studies is, um, essentially to be a scholar who kind of looks at a particular time and place, um, in history and a Right. So like we talk about it as a conjuncture, right? So like I want to really just understand this moment and the objects of study that we use are less about understanding them for their own sake and more about using them as a way in. Right. Um, so I think I love craft beer and I'm passionate about it, but in a way it really just was my way in to understanding the contemporary moment. Yeah. Um, So the interesting part is once you kind of frame it like that, you realize, okay, what if I look at other ways in, right? Um, So there's other kind of food structures that I've looked at as well, um, to try to understand like what's going on, um, in the country. So I think beer was a really excellent way to look at socioeconomic power, um, in some ways, um, social stratification. Mm -hmm. Um, but I've also looked at, um, different kinds of systemic food structures. So, um, for a while I was working on prison food systems, commissaries, largely, um, and how it is that, um, power is articulated through food um, within the prison system, which is, um, if you don't know anything about prison food, it's actually pretty crazy how, how that works. Um, so, you know, and a lot of people, you know, when they first kind of look at it, they're like, what in the hell? But then you realize um, food is so incredibly ubiquitous, it's impossible for not for it to not have implications in po- with power. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, and then once you think about the size of the industries that are associated with food production, food packaging, food distribution, retail, consumption experiences, you realize, okay, we're talking about enormous um, power formations, even when you're talking about beer.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how does that work with beer? I mean, there, has long circulated, I mean, going back into the, uh, late eighties, early nineties, this idea that beer is a craft beer is a, uh, kind of bourgeois or yuppie back in the, back in those days, they call it yuppie. Um, yeah. you know, boutique breweries, all this stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, did, uh, what What was your experience with that? How did did that that reconcile with what you were looking at?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, this is the interesting part because I think people are always are like, what was your personal motivation? And I think if I had any personal motivation kind of driving that first like extensive research project with beer, um, it was really just kind of trying to reconcile my own presence in an industry where I rarely saw anybody else who looked like me. Yeah. Right. Um, and I mean from the early two thousands to now there's been uh, enormous amounts of change. Right. Um, but in the beginning I would, I definitely had a lot of this moment where I was just kind of like, how is it that I feel simultaneously so enthusiastic and accepted in this community and so utterly isolated at the same time. Um, And so I I wasn't necessarily like asking the gender or the race or the sexuality question or any of those questions, you know, far off, but I always was kind of looking for explanations, if that makes sense. Um, And then once you kind of look at the, the bigger issues, right? Like what are the ways that power is distributed within this particular industry or cultural community, then the other things just sort of fall into place, right? They start to make sense. So um, if you take American beer, you know, my kind of scope went from post-prohibition, so about 1934, forward. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take, you know, the first five decades of beer post prohibition and you just simply look at the messaging, right? There's not a whole lot of wonderful positive reinforcing (laughs) messages for women or people of color to grab onto. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, when you don't give people an anchor, it's, it's not surprising when they're not around. Yeah. Um, and then you have the kind of very specific, you know, marketing of malt liquor to urban communities in the Uh 1960s and 70s. And um, what I think is interesting is that a lot of people are like, well, didn't that bring a lot more people of color and people living in urban communities to beer? Um, And I think in one sense, yes. But then you mentioned, you know, you mentioned that word yuppie. And then you think about the 1980s and 90s when um, lots of people are, looking to kind of do a new sort of upward social mobility. And if you're looking at upward social mobility in black folks among this time, you see a lot of people making an effort to dissociate themselves with a kind of urban working class blackness or brownness. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, people are saying like, I want to be like Cosby's and Mm -hmm. not Sanford and son. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways, for lots of people, this meant if what I know of beer is a 40 ounce and everything that goes along with those meanings, and I'm trying to dissociate with myself with that, a lot of upwardly mobile black people just said, yeah, to hell with beer, period. Mm -hmm. And they went for premium liquor. Mm -hmm. Um, And you still see this um, like consumption pattern, right? Like lots and lots of openly mobile or cosmopolitan black folks tend towards premium liquor rather than craft beer. Um, and so there was a, there's a, like a fairly lasting rupture that was caused there at least racially, you know, um, you know, the eighties were a time when beer (laughs) was, um, aggressively marketing a certain kind of like heterosexual male, um, you know, sexuality do you have like Swedish bikini team and all sorts of like absurd things happening at that time. Um, and I think a lot of women were like, yeah, pass. Right. Totally. Um, so you just, you have this kind of moment where craft comes out where at least those two populations have a good reason not to have a a great relationship with craft. Um, and then you're thinking about, you know, the 1970s economically, right? Like this is just past the civil rights movement. There are, there are huge swaths of the country that are still trying to desegregate. You've had you know, the effects of ram- redlining, destroying communities. There's not a lot of black wealth or education anyway. Um, and then you're talking about like, why aren't black people in at this industry? And you're like, well, not a lot of black people were walking into a bank and getting a startup loan for a business model that was essentially unproven Mm -hmm. in the 1970s. Like that's not happening. Um, so there's a, there's a serious moment of like, well, there, there really wasn't a lot of capital available for certain other people to be in on the ground floor here. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's tons of all these kind of converging narratives, I guess. Um, but when people ask the question, like, why aren't there that many people of color or why aren't there that many women? Uh-oh. Like we could just sit here all day. We lost right, you like again. Because history. You know? here. We're having um, a little
1: sky problem. Uh, I think we caught, no, I think we caught your meaning though, actually.
2: Okay, great. Uh, still there?
1: Yeah, we're still here.
2: Okay. Um, you know, so I mean, the the short answer is craft beer didn't happen in a vacuum. You know, yeah. uh, it's part of, it's a part of American culture.
1: It seems like there was this simultaneous thing that was happening. Um, as craft beer was developing, because there was an absence of uh, non whites and, and mostly non white males, um, there was an aesthetic and an approach that developed, uh, which is quite homogenous when you travel around the country. You know, when you're in a brew pub, there's kind of a, you know, a brew pub looks like a brew pub. Yeah. Um, that reflects that white aesthetic. Uh, so the fact that you had this absence of other expressions going along seems to have kind of isolated, kind of siloed that development as well. Is that, is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I think, um, like one of the ways I like to talk about this is in terms of like, um, cultural space. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I'm a communication scholar, so, um, I'm always attuned to meaning, right? Like how is meaning created, managed, transmitted, um, and space does so much of this. Right. Um, and there's some fascinating research. Um, I'm I'm afraid I can't remember any scholar names at this time. People who have studied, um, cultural connotations of space. Um, and thinking specifically of, a of an analysis of whole foods, Mm -hmm. um, or, or if I can't say that, um, Boutique grocery stores.
1: Uh, (laughs) We're a pretty loose podcast. You can say it.
2: Um, That um, was essentially um, decoding them for signifiers of white space. Yeah. Um, So like what what about this makes it communicate to you as white space? And these are all kind of meanings that resonate with people usually subconsciously, right? Um, So it's not necessarily like they go in and have this active thought. Their thought might just be, I don't know if I belong here.
1: Right. Um,
2: yeah. and I think, you know, obviously I haven't studied it, but I absolutely be willing to kind of make the hypothesis that a lot of this is going on in the kind of material aesthetics of brew pubs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was, <laughs> uh, there was a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of discussion for decades now about how white, uh, craft beer feels and I, and it's a it's, it's those, those symbols and that kind of subtle communication you're talking about. I think that since that's that, that it, it broadcasts that out. Uh, Well, let's talk. So you were um, recently hired, appointed um, to work with the Brewers Association uh, and help them Create Some kind of sense of, uh, the, the industry, people in the industry and state guilds and stuff, uh, bring other voices into the the conversation and, and create, I, 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 I remember reading that you didn't love the word diversity on, on Twitter. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dancing around that, trying not to say it, but I don't have another word. So, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> uh, yeah. help create help for lack of a better word from on my side, uh, help create diversity in this, uh, this growing pure world. Um, so, uh, how how do, what does that look like going forward? Um, how does diversification happen and what, what are, what are the conversations you're having with those folks and what are you, what are you communicating and letting, giving them to think about?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess I'll start with why I don't like the word diversity. Um, so two reasons. Um, one, I think it's um I think it's become a little overdetermined now, uh-huh. um meaning like it's one of those words that's got more meaning packed onto it than it um than it know that it knows how to carry. right. Um, so it, like it it's signifying too much to too many people in too many ways. Um, and once it gets to that kind of overdetermined point, it doesn't really have any utility as a, as like a marker of specificity. Right. Um, so like all the time people are like diversity. I'm like, what did you mean? Right. (laughs) Did you, did you just use that as a euphemism for black? Right. Um, are you saying that as in like, Oh gosh, now the PC police are on me. Right. Like it it could mean so many different things. So, um, that's one thing I don't like, but the second thing is more functional. And that's simply that diversity is an end state, right? Like we want to, have this industry reflect the diversity of all of the people who are in our country, but it doesn't have any, um, it doesn't say anything about what it takes to get there. Yeah. Um, so lots of times when you say, yeah, we want to do diversity. I'm like, no, diversity is the end, (laughs) not the process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense.
2: Um, so I always want to shift people's conversation to, okay, if you want to get there, let's talk about the process. Um, and so I always think of the, process in terms of three kind of pieces, inclusion, equity, justice. Okay. All right. And that, um, if you are doing those things, diversity is an outcome. Right. Um, so, uh, if I had to kind of put the sum up of what I'm doing in my role as diversity ambassador, it's to talk to people about, um, doing inclusion, equity, and justice. And you know, what does that look like in different spaces? Um, interestingly, I thought that the job would have to do a lot of justifying why it is important to do these things. And, um, to be a hundred percent honest, I haven't had to do a lot of that, which is a really nice relief because we can just kind of look at doing the work.
1: Oh, that is good. Yeah. yeah. That, that's nice. That's <laughs> surprising.
2: Yeah, I, I was also surprised. Um, <laughs> and to some degree, I think, you know, having a fairly clear economic imperative um, right. <laughs> doesn't hurt. Right. right? Uh, like, you, <laughs> you know, you Look, need to sell here right. uh, Looking that for growth.
1: Hurts. Maybe you start looking where you haven't tried to get it before. Yes, that, exactly. Yeah.
2: Um, exactly. So, and, I, you know, a lot of people are like, is that bad? And I'm like, no, that's real, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh so yeah, that's um I would say that's specifically what I've been trying to work on. It's challenging because as you know, um there's so much variation in the size of um organizations in the industry. You know, we've got some folks who have like four employees and some who have over a thousand. Right. Um and there's different forms of operation, right? Brew pubs, tap rooms, production breweries, et cetera. Um, and then there's so much, so many of folks are operating in the kind of hyper-local model. Um, so, so there's a tremendous amount of variation in what diversity might mean and how you might approach um, strategies for being inclusive, equitable, and just. Um, and so a lot of what I end up doing is trying to give people frameworks or tools for figuring out what that looks like for them.
1: And can you talk a little bit about that? And also I'm, I'm interested in the inclusion, uh, inclusion, equity and justice component. Uh, how do you operationalize those?
2: Okay. So, um, so lots of metaphors, uh, <laughs> Which I don't know if that's exactly operationalizing, but it kind of helps people see what I'm talking about. Um, So inclusion, I generally just think of this as uh, making sure everyone feels invited and welcome. Mm -hmm. I think of equity as making sure everyone is able to have a comparable experience once they have arrived. And I think of justice as... Finding the reasons why people might not be able to have comparable experiences and eliminating them.
1: That one seems like the more challenging one.
2: Yes, and it's honestly the most effective one. <laughs> um, but it, <laughs> but but that's that's um, for me sometimes the end goal, right? And I usually call that you know barriers to access. There's so if you kind of think about it, like if if there's a barrier for a particular group to kind of feeling comfortable and having a relationship with a particular brand, you can say, okay, well we're going to be inclusive, but that doesn't remove the barrier, right? Um, You can say, okay, we'll be equitable and we'll make some concessions to help account for the barrier, but honestly, treating people differently doesn't often play very well. Um, so the kind of just and most effective thing to do is just start if possible.
1: So, um, I interrupted you and, uh, forced you down the, the, the path of your, those three and you were about to say something else that was interesting too, but I've already forgotten what it was. Do you remember what you were about to say that was interesting?
2: Uh, (laughs) Do you Patrick
1: (laughs) miss anybody? Old brains.
2: Um, let me go back. Um I was going to say, uh, da, 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 what does that look like for breweries? Um maybe that's what I was gonna say. Okay. Um, so what is how does it how's it how do I help them through that process? Yeah, yeah, that, that like? sounds right. Exactly. Um okay, so in a lot of ways, um, it's just about getting people to kind of diagnose like when when is inclusion enough, right? when is equity enough and when do you need to try to remove barriers? And I think removal of barriers is always my gold standard. And so I center a lot of what I do around that. Um, and a lot of it is about figuring out what those barriers are because a lot of times the problem is certain people don't see them. Um, and then secondarily, um, there's definitely the issue that if it's if I can't see this barrier or I don't experience it, therefore it's not real. Yeah. Right? Um, and so a lot of also this is kind of like, well, if it's affecting people's behavior, right. Or if it's keeping them from having a relationship with your brand, guess what? It's real. Right. Um, so, you know, that can be a sticky conversation, but, um, you know, I think one of the advantages of being a teacher by trade is that I'm used to having a lot of sticky conversations and I don't mind it. Um, and, uh, I think it was one of the reasons why this, this position was a good fit.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this Patrick, so the extent to which, uh, craft beer, and I think especially at the sort of hyper local or small craft brewer level is really, uh, uh a pretty personal expression of the of the owner and, um, and brewers involved. Uh, it seems that fundamentally the, the, if, if you're going to talk about diversity as a, as a, as an end, um, that really comes down to ownership. So do you think that, uh, that will naturally follow from, uh, uh increasing the inclusiveness in terms of, um, staff and, uh, uh, consumers
2: to some degree? Um, yeah, to some degree, right? Like, um, in it, if you're turn, if you're thinking about when you say ownership, you're talking about like brewery ownership. Yeah, right? about uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the the true yeah. position of power, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it increases the chances, but I don't know that it ensures anything about ownership because, again, ownership is often a consequence of education or wealth or all sorts of things, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's some kind of larger cultural things kind of intervening there. And that's actually one of the types of barriers, um, right. That I think about as far as like, wow, this is, um, this is not because of craft beer. It doesn't exist solely within craft beer, but nonetheless, it's a barrier we have to work with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some of those ways you can think about, um, how do we intervene? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, cause right, like this gets played out everywhere, right? Because the, the the D-word skeptics, the diversity skeptics, as soon as you talk about disparities in ownership, they're going to say things like, no one's stopping you from opening a brewery. <laughs> right, right. Um, and you're like, okay, so you just made the inclusion argument, right?
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so, super. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so that we realize that there's nothing to do there. You bump up and say, okay, let's talk about equity, right? Mm. Um, and so that's kind of like, Okay, so do we have to provide extra for a particular group, right, um, so that we can kind of offset the effects of um, a systemic injustice? Um, and I would say in lots of places, people say yes, right? Let's make mentoring available for this particular group, or let's provide more education, or let's make sure these folks have more opportunities. Um, Now, that's great. But you again, you are always going to have people say, like, why do these people get special treatment? Right. Yeah. Um, And so ideally, if you could, the best solution is just to remove the injustice. Right. Yeah. Remove the barrier. Now, when we're talking about brewery ownership, I don't know that that's something that's in our power. Right. Um, as a community, but when we're talking about smaller issues or things where, that are happening in the space of a of a particular organization, you may very well have the power to remove an injustice, um, and that, right, that's something that moves the needle.
1: Yeah. So you said uh, beer is communication. In my experience, uh, in the the research and writing that I've done, I always say beer is culture, mm-hmm. and. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I've, I've, already mentioned it. I feel like when I walk into a craft beer space, it's very white and I'm, and that's a, a reflection of culture. And I'm wondering, uh, how, uh, you know, how do we, uh, <laughs> create spaces that don't feel so white? How, do, how do you, is there, um, a way even not necessarily changing the space, but if you're a brewery owner and you wanted to, uh, look out over your tap room and see a reflection of the city rather than just uh, white faces. Mm-hmm. What can you, what, you know, is there, is there something that, that a brewery owner can do or, or people who visit places can do to uh, help, you know, create, create that sense of uh, it's not this cultural uh, filter that you have to walk through.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think to one degree, there's absolutely a strong case to be made for representation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, who you see when you arrive makes a difference. Yeah, right? um, that that just is true. Um, but in the absence of like existing representation, um, I think you have to be careful and maybe intentional about um, shaping the meanings in the spaces and with the objects that you have control over. Right. Um, so, you know, right now I think in craft beer we have. Um, the challenge of a weirdly narrow set of meanings being attached to this product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I don't think that's something that's just affecting um, groups like women or people of color. I actually think it affects everyone because my sense is that all of the white guys who get kind of lumped in are pissed off about that too. Like they're like, (laughs) I am a lot different from that other guy, white guy. Why are we all the same? Right. Yeah. Um, so it's weird. The homogenizing of meaning with craft beer is, it's kind of crappy for everybody right now, (laughs) to be honest. Um, You know, because there's a lot of people who are just exhausted and honestly a little bit like handcuffed by it. Um, So I think every intentional effort that anyone makes to say this can mean something you don't think it means is helpful. Even if it's not directly about race or gender or sexuality or any other identity category, anytime you attach this product to a new articulation of meanings, you're doing some excellent work. Yeah. Um, And so a lot of times the question I get is, okay, but I want to do this. How do I do it without being inauthentic or without pandering? Right. Right. Um, and I always say people, to people, like, I love you for asking that question, but take the I out of it, right? You don't do it. Like, go find somebody to collaborate with, uh-huh. right? Or go find somebody else who is saying what you want to say better and go do the work of amplifying their voice.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: On beer Twitter, uh, and, and actually in the real world, there are a few folks, uh, this is... I'm more aware of uh, the black community doing this more than, uh, LGBT or, uh, women or, well, actually with pink boots, I suppose women are getting involved or the Latino community, but, uh, really advocating for, um, creating spaces that are white, uh, and, and trying to build that bridge, to the black community. Uh, there's one guy named Ducci who's on, on Twitter and talking about all, a lot about that. And he just recently wrote a book about how to, do that um are outside efforts like that like this is a a, like a consumer-based effort are Mm -hmm. those effective that's more like the activist approach instead of the institutional approach what do you see the role of, of folks like that playing in in this endeavor
2: i think it's absolutely critical absolutely unquestionably and i think it's interesting because Um, From an organizational standpoint, or even from the kind of industry standpoint, it can be exciting and terrifying to work with groups that are consumer-driven. Yeah. Because they don't don't necessarily have a set of priorities that a business owner does. Right. Right. Um, However, I think that um, for my money, it's one of the most important you know, partnerships that needs to be made. In fact, to this end, um, you know, I have two seminars at CBC 19, um, coming up in Denver. And one of them is specifically how to work with consumer driven groups in order to move the needle in diversity. Um, so I have a panel of, um, bunch of people from a bunch of different consumer-driven groups that represent different populations that are not always associated with craft beer. Um, so I've got somebody from beer culture coming. Um, I've got somebody from, um, queers making beers. It's a homebrew club. Um, Sobraseros, that's a Latinx homebrew club, uh, girls pine out, obviously consumer-driven group, um, that are focusing on women, um, black brew culture who organized, uh, fresh fest, uh, Mm -hmm. ale Sharpton coming out of Atlanta and, um, Ren Navarro from Toronto. They're all going to be sitting on the same panel, um, talking to people in the industry about how specifically to work with them. People like them.
1: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed to just in a short period of time had a big effect at least, you know, in 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 the beer twitter twitter sphere which is not actually uh a very big group it's not yeah it's not real life no. <laughs> <laughs> uh we we tend to over inflate it if we're involved in the beer twitter sphere but uh yeah but but still even in that regard um you know that the it's changed the conversation noticeably in the last year
2: yeah i, I believe so yeah
1: absolutely awesome. so um we've taken a lot of your time. I'm sensitive to that. Uh, is there anything that, uh, I haven't asked you that, uh, you'd like to share with us that, um, I'm missing. Uh, I'm sure there is, but something that it's essential that, uh, you want to pass along.
2: You know, um, I think that the, one of the things I struggled with for a long time as I was like, um, for a long time, the only academic I knew who talked about beer, um, and now that's changed tremendously, which is pretty amazing. Um, But, and then also, right, as someone who um, cared a lot more about this um, than like anybody else I knew, um, you know, I think there's something to be said for, for being unwilling to compromise on the legitimacy of, of caring about things like this through an artifact like beer. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, sure, it's supposed to be delicious, and it's supposed to be fun, and, it, and we associate it with, you know, leisure and social connection and all of these things. I absolutely believe that. But I also think it's okay for it to be the center of really important or really uncomfortable or really abstract conversations. That's okay too. Right. Um, and I think, you know, this particular industry has so much potential, um, to do good work beyond itself. It's one of the reasons, you know, why I'm so passionate about it and why i I thought working in this capacity um, with the Brewers Association and beyond was going to be something productive Um, because there's, there's something here, you know, at the risk of being like sentimental, there's something special about, you know, an industry that in the particular moment continues to explode and continues to diversify and is pathways to small business ownership and has people rethinking relationships between, raw ingredients and consumers and communities and right? like what all other functions can you, we serve while also making a living, you know, um, there's so, there's so much wealth there, not just monetary wealth, but intellectual wealth and creative wealth and community wealth to be mined. And, um, you know, I don't want to ever feel people to ever feel like they need to pull back from, asking those kinds of questions or making those kind of statements because it's just beer, right? Like Mm -hmm. in my mind, there's no such thing of just beer, right? Um, it's beer. And like, for me, that's big and profound and amazing.
1: Yeah. And sometimes, uh, you need to get into a sphere that is not natively polarizing and, and, and difficult, uh, in order to have these more difficult conversations in a safer space. And I, mm-hmm. I've often felt like I, I used to write about politics and I'm, a phrase I'm fond of is politics divide and beer unites. Yeah. Um, so there are ways in which, uh, you take a, uh, phenomenon as broad as widespread and broad as beer, uh, where, where it's native, uh, kind of, feeling is bringing people together then mm-hmm. you yeah you have an opportunity to start bringing dif- disparate people together and and you know you mentioned business uh is often on the forefront of uh social change and you know the uh, the military places you don't actually expect uh social change to happen often are the places they happen so there's no reason to think beer couldn't be one of those agents of change yeah. too
2: absolutely yeah. absolutely
1: Well, all right. That's a wonderful place to end on a hopeful note. In 2019, we love hopeful notes. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time and your insight. This was as rich as I expected it to be.
2: Thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, I love having these kinds of conversations, for sure.
1: All right. right. Thank you, Professor. (laughs) Uh, And you can, uh, should we plug your website? Where where should people find you if they want to learn more about what you're doing?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> so, well, I'm actually weirdly between websites right now. Okay. Um, so maybe don't plug in anything. Um, okay. But, um, well. You're widespread we'll run... on the
1: internet, so. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit weird. People can uh, <laughs> people can probably just uh, track you down by typing your name in. And that's yeah. uh, uh, J-Nicole, N-I-K-O-L, uh, Jackson Beckham. So yep. look for yep. look for her online, and, and uh, again, I I highly encourage anyone who is was on Twitter to to follow Jay because she's got a lot of interesting stuff to say. Awesome. So, all right, we will leave it there, and uh, we'll see you uh, online and around the world, and
0: uh, keep following what you're doing. Outstanding. Um... Oops. Okay. So that was a little bit, bit of abrupt ending. Uh, our apologies. Uh, uh Dr. J was talking about um, potentially making it out to Portland. Uh so my apologies, Dr. J for cutting you off there. But uh if you do make it out to Portland, please look us up. We had a we had a Skype error right at the end, which actually if you're gonna have a Skype error, the end is the place to have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were, and there were a couple little spots in there where Skype sort of cut out strangely, uh, but I don't think it was too um uh disruptive. So uh thanks very much uh to uh, uh Dr. Jackson Beckham for um uh, and joining us on the pod that was a really interesting and uh uh and good conversation we're just uh, uh talking about uh uh diversity in, in brew houses hopefully one day leading to diversity in ownership because more and more at least around portland you see uh people who've learned their trade by working for one brewery go off and start their own uh, yeah and we uh, i think it's exactly right she made the point
1: diversity can mean so many things and there is one way in which diversity is already starting to happen and that's among women in the industry we're starting to see much greater penetration and if that looks like and it it probably does looks like the process happening then what you see is it's it's extremely rare for female brewers to be in the business and then there's a few and then that creates more interest in other women to come into the industry because they see women in the industry and then there's more and more and then they rise
0: to senior levels and then eventually you start to have parody. Yeah, which, and that's exactly what she was alluding to, too, in, yeah. terms, of, in terms of the pubs themselves. And, and I, think, uh, I, I think it's also the sort of the same kind of chicken and egg dynamic with uh, consumers. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, okay, well, that was um, really kind of her to join us and spend so much time. It was, and uh, I really enjoyed that, so I hope you did, too. Yeah, uh, so we have no mailbag.
1: Yeah, and let's let's uh we're gonna make a strong appeal now. A strong <laughs> and specific appeal. We were off uh the air or the pod air, whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how you're supposed to refer to it. <laughs> yeah. For uh weeks there and it kind of interrupted um the conversational element. Uh, but we would love to hear what you have to say. So so please send in some uh, comments and questions. Um Suggest- suggestions for future pods. Yeah. All that stuff. This was a, such a rich conversation. I can't imagine that some of you out there don't have a comment or a question or an opinion that you'd like to weigh in with or an experience. Maybe you uh, work in a brewery or own a brewery and have seen some effective uh, processes there. Um, share those with us. Uh, let's get the dialogue going back uh, back, back on. Um, I think we are... Sort of back on track. I think we're gonna start podcasting routinely again. So idea. if you if you uh <laughs> if you send us in something now, a comment, we will have it on in a couple of weeks when we come back for the next pod.
0: Right. So, so please do. Uh you can always um find us if you'd like to send us feedback. You can email at uh Jeff at Jeff at BeervanaBlog dot com or you can veer, visit the Beer Vano blog Facebook page. Or tweet me.
1: Uh any of those things will work. We'll use any medium we get at uh, comment through, we will we'll
0: throw it up here. Yeah, yeah, you can send us comments on the Twitter. Uh, th- thanks very much for listening to the podcast. We'd like to encourage you to rate us and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. No, I don't know where we are on SoundCloud. <laughs> I don't we're not, no, I know we're on SoundCloud and <laughs> iTunes. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, by rating us and subscribing to us, it helps other listeners find us. So please, uh, please do so.
2: Yep.
0: Uh, Jeff blogs of courses. We mentioned the Birvana blog, and he tweets at, at Birvana patrick tweets at uh Beernomics. and we have no beer we have no beer it's, it's early it's still early we're teetotalers so. this morning i guess <laughs> so i have nothing <laughs> to cheers with but i'll just say cheers to you jeff and cheers to you patrick All right. <laughs>